Well, this morning we are going to take communion together, but we're going to do it uh, in a little bit after the message, and we've been doing that this last year, Try doing something a little different. Normally we take communion uh, first and then have the message. Well, this morning I want to preach the message first and then have communion as a, a way of responding to what we're going to learn uh, or at least be reminded of uh, in God's Word today. So uh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at just a few verses here. A familiar parable that Jesus told about the importance of being ready for Christ's return. And as I was thinking and praying about what would be an appropriate message to launch us into the new year, 2021, I thought, what do we need more than anything else in light of what we've been through in 2020 is, is hope. And, and what, as uh, for the Christian, for believers, what is our ultimate hope? Our ultimate hope is that this is not our home that uh, we have heaven to look forward to and that Jesus is coming back to get us. He promised that he would go prepare a place for us and that he would return to bring us there to be with him. And so I thought, why not talk about living like Christ will come in 2021? Has a little bit of a ring to it, doesn't it? Something that maybe we could all uh, remember easily as we go into this new year together. But as a basis for our thoughts this morning, let's look at Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Jesus said this, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them, so blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Father, these are sobering words. But for us who know Christ, they should also be exciting words. And so I pray that as we meditate today for a little bit on what your word says about the return of Christ, that our hearts would be stirred up, our minds would be focused as we launch into this new year together, and that we could hold one another accountable to live our lives in light of the imminent return of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm curious, how many of you are familiar with the concept of a watch night service? Go ahead and raise your hand. A watch night service. Okay, like I thought, it was pretty much the older people. Don't take offense at that, okay? I'm including myself in that statement, okay? Um, the tradition of a watch night service 
can be traced back to the early 1700s when Moravian churches gathered on New Year's Eve uh, to reflect on the past year and to contemplate the year to come. Uh, John Wesley, who was the father of the Methodist church, adopted that practice for his followers as a godly alternative to the drunken revelry that typically occurs on New Year's Eve. Um, A typical watch night service includes a time for reflection and confession and worship, prayer, and typically concludes by taking communion together uh, to bring in or welcome in the new year. And uh, I'm sure like uh, me, uh, a number of you grew up with that tradition. Uh, I grew up going to a small rural Lutheran church in New England, and every New Year's Eve, the young people would gather to eat together and play games together and sing and pray and stay up all night and then have a pancake breakfast the following morning to bring bring in the new year. Um, Well, honestly, the only thing I really remember about those watch night services is the scary movies they showed about the second coming of Christ. And I don't know about what your watch night service experience was, but it seemed like that was the highlight uh, of the night for our church. Uh, There was a popular series of Christian films produced back in the 70s and the 80s that depicted professing Christians who missed the rapture and had to figure out how to survive living through the tribulation. It was the, if you will, the original uh, Left Behind series. Um, The series consisted of three movies, A Thief in the Night, was the first one. The second one was a distant thunder, and the other one was called the image of the beast. And it seemed like they just kept like rotating these movies every New Year's. And I, I lost track of how many times I saw them. And they just every time they scared me out of my wits. Okay, when I saw them. And the, the title track for these, what I would refer to as evang- uh, or evangelistic horror movies, was the haunting song "I Wish We'd All Been Ready." by Larry Norman. Some of you guys remember Larry Norman, one of the original Christian rock artists. But I can still remember watching in terror as those who had been left behind were suddenly stung by these large large scorpion-like creatures. And they never really showed the whole thing. It was just like kind of off screen and all of a sudden, and the person would just die. And, and, And others were fleeing for their lives from the from the group called Unite, which was the Antichrist cronies trying to capture everybody who wouldn't take the mark of the beast and, and, and anybody who refused to take the mark of the beast were executed by guillotine. And they were showing this. I mean, this was not your typical family-friendly movie. Um, well, it definitely worked because I got saved every New Year's Eve. <laughs> so I'm, I know I'm saved because it's like, I don't know how many times I, I prayed in, in, in for my fear of my life, right? I didn't want any of that to happen, to be true of me. Well, Seriously, I haven't attended a watch night service since my teen years, and it's not been a part of our tradition here at Lakeside as an independent, non-denominational Bible church. Um, but we as Christians, I think, should live every day of our, of our lives with a, with a watch night perspective. And one of my duties as a pastor is to remind us that Jesus is coming back. Amen? And we need to be ready, watching and waiting for his imminent return. And the goal is not to strike terror into our hearts like those movies were apparently intended to do. Um, 
although the Bible does say that those who, who reject Christ, um, or to those who reject Christ, that it is, a, it is. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10, 31. But for those of us who embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, being reminded that he could come back at any moment shouldn't fill us with fear. It should fill us with hope. In fact, the Bible refers to the return of Christ as the believer's, what? Blessed hope. Titus 2.13. And as I mentioned earlier, in light of all that we've experienced this past year, what we need more than anything else, I think, as we enter 2021 is hope. So that's why I thought it would be good for us to have a, a watch night or maybe a watch morning service today on the first Sunday of the new year and focus on Christ's return. When you consider all that's happened in our country and really around the world this past year, I think anyone with a, a, even the smallest bit of spiritual discernment can sense that the return of Christ is approaching fast. And recent events like the global pandemic, civil unrest, uh, political strife, social injustice, economic crisis, you name it, they all seem apocalyptic in nature and they make it appear that we are living in the end times or what the Bible refers to as the last days. 2 Timothy 3.1, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. 2 Peter 3.3, 3, knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. But regardless of how you may interpret the signs of the times, one thing is certain that we are one year closer to the return of Christ. When Christ was here on earth, he promised that he would come back to earth to get his followers and bring them to live with him in heaven. He said that, made that promise in John 14, verse 2, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. As you know, after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven. A pair of angels appeared to the disciples who were there witnessing his ascension and they reaffirmed his promise that he would return. Acts chapter one, verse 10. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And ever since that moment, followers of Christ have lived in eager anticipation of his return. That is really the, 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 the sense of the entire New Testament. Whenever we hear about the return of Christ, it's, it's this, this idea of awaiting eagerly. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says that we await eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That little phrase, eagerly await, literally means to, to thrust forward your head and to stick out your neck. 
in, anx- in anxious anticipation of hearing or seeing something. You, it, it, the idea is you're, you're standing on your tippy toes. You're, you're, you're wanting to hear. You're wanting to see because you know it's something that's happening. It's an important event, an occasion you don't want to miss, and so you strain not to miss it. Well, every period of church history has had events, has had situations which seem to indicate that the end was near. We're not the only ones. We're not the first ones. The saints in every generation have thought that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. Back when you read the New Testament, it's clear that believers back then accepted, expected Christ to come back before they died. For example, when you look at uh, Paul's writings, particularly his letter to the Thessalonians, when he was talking about the rapture, he included himself in it. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. And so Paul lived and ministered, believing that Christ would return in his lifetime. And it's from texts like these that we derive the extremely relevant doctrine of the imminence of Christ's return, which simply means that Christ could return at any moment. He could come back this year. He could come back this week. He could come back today. Do you really believe that? How often do you think about that? You see, the imminency of Christ's return is one of the foundational doctrines in the life of every church and and every believer. If you've gone through our membership class, you, you may remember that little house diagram that I hand out to everybody and I kind of talk through kind of our philosophy of ministry as a church and there's the foundation stones. There's eight foundational stones or, or, or building blocks to, 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 the, to the life of this church and, and, and really they're just, it's just systematic theology. It's all the truth of the Bible summarized into eight different categories. There's the authority of the word of God. There's the supremacy of the glory of God. There's the centrality of the son of God. There's the efficacy of the spirit of God. In other words, it's the spirit of God that does all the work. There's the depravity of man. There's the sovereignty of God in salvation. There's the primacy of the church. And then the the last one, number eight, is the imminency of Christ's return. And and we, we understand that we live and we serve as aliens, as strangers in a foreign land, which colors everything we do. We do everything with eager anticipation for that glorious moment when our bridegroom comes back to get his bride. And so this concept of the imminency of Christ's return promotes a sense of urgency that, that time's running out and there's much work to be done and it also gives us a, a desire for purity. And I think it's, to, to me, it's sad that 
that the imminency of Christ's return is often overshadowed by the intricacy of Christ's return. In other words, uh, we get all wrapped up in the, the, the details of, 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 of the return of Christ and the differing views about the timing of when Jesus will return. And we like to argue about eschatology, which is the doctrine of future things. Like, you know, will it be a pre-tribulational rapture, a mid-tribulational rapture, or a pre-wrath rapture, or a post-trib rapture? And will there be a millennium? Will it be a pre-millennium? Or will it be an amillennial, right? Where, where do we stand in all these uh, views? And eschatology is not as precise as all the other doctrines in the Bible. And so we can't be as dogmatic about it as we can be about other things like the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation. There's not much wiggle room, if any, in those doctrines, right? But there seems to be some wiggle room when it comes to the end times because Scripture has chose, God chose not to be super specific, right, when it came to talking about the end times, And so we can't be absolutely sure about the timing of Jesus' return, but frankly, that doesn't matter. What matters most is that we know he's coming back and that we need to be ready. That should be our emphasis. That should be our focus, and it could be today. It could be this year. It could be in our lifetime. So we need to be ready, which is the point of the parable here of the watchful servant that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, and the, the, the context in which Jesus told this story was when he was exhorting his disciples not to be worldly-minded, but to be heavenly-minded or kingdom-focused. And uh, we're familiar with uh, the verses that precede this. Um, Jesus was teaching them not to worry about what they were going to uh, eat and what they were going to wear. For your life is, not, is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. You know, they don't uh, you know, store up food. They just trust the Lord and he provides. And consider the lilies of the field. You know, they, they just uh, they don't toil or spin. They, uh, God just clothes them with beauty. And um, if God does this with grass, then why would you worry? You of little faith. And then he gets down to uh, verse 30. I love this. He says, for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, or nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. And so he's talking about being heavenly minded or, or kingdom focused here, which all will be initiated at the second coming of Christ. And so he naturally uh, begins to tell this story, this parable of the watchful servant. And what he does here is he uses two analogies, two analogies to explain or to emphasize the importance of being watchful so that we'll be ready and rewarded by Christ when he returns. These two analogies are very simple. One is a a master returning from a wedding. The other is a robber burglarizing a home. 
Let's look at each of these analogies quickly and then we'll draw some practical implications for our lives from this text. First of all, a master returning from a wedding. Look at verse 35. He says, be dressed in readiness. Literally, let your loins be girded. If you have uh, uh, maybe a, a New King James Version or an Old King James Version, you've got that in front of you. It says, let, keep, your, keep your loins girded. And then what that meant was, and, and uh, it kind of sounds weird. It's like we don't even use the word loins anymore. It's like, don't talk to me about your loins. I'm not interested in your loins, right? Unless it's a pork loin, right? Um, then I'm interested. But what, what are we talking about? You're girding your loins. Well, in, in biblical times, men would wear these long flowing robes that would um, get in the way if they tried to work or to run or to fight. And so that what they would do is they would tuck pull all that up inside their belt, tuck it inside their belt so they could work or they could uh, go to war or they could travel. Exodus 12, 11, God told the nation of Israel, now you shall eat in this manner, this is the Passover, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover because guess what? You're out of here. And so you're gonna eat the Passover and, and you're gonna, I'm gonna deliver you from Egypt. Job 38.3, God rebuked Job for questioning him, and he said, now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct, and, 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 and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Jeremiah 1.17, God said to the young prophet, as he was launching into his ministry, he said, gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. So again, all of these have the idea of readiness. And they're very specific. And the emphasis here, and it doesn't, we don't see this in the, in the English translation, but it actually, in the original language, says you gird up your loins. You be dressed in readiness. So there's an emphasis on you, getting your attention. So you be dressed in readiness, and you keep your lamps lit. In other words, don't let your lamps go out. And of course, in, in a day and age when there was no electricity, right, at nighttime, you really survived on, on candlelight or torchlight. And so at nighttime, you needed to make sure that your, your, your fires didn't go out, your candles didn't go out, your lamps didn't go out, your torches didn't go out. And so again, here is, uh, you know, your lamps, keeping your lamps lit and your loins girded both represent being prepared. And, uh, of course, you're familiar with the parable of the, the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Jesus, referring to his return here, tells a, tells a parable of the ten virgins. This is Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent, for when the foolish took their lamps... They took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us, and you too Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour. So again, these are sobering stories that Jesus told 
to emphasize the importance of being ready. And hence Larry Norman's song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Notice he goes on to say here, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Again, very similar to the parable of the virgins we just read. Uh, Hebrew weddings would last up to a week, if not longer. And so the time of the master's return was anyone's guess. It wasn't like you go to a wedding for a couple of hours and come home and you, know, you can expect somebody back in a timely way. You, just, you never knew. And so the servants needed to keep their oil replenished, their wicks trimmed. They needed to remain vigilant so they could greet their master with burning torches whenever he arrived. So these servants, uh, or those servants that, that the master finds awake and finds alert will receive an unbelievable blessing or reward. Notice verse 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. This is a remarkable statement here. In fact, one old German Bible scholar regarded this verse as the greatest promise in all of God's word. Here we see this Stunning role reversal. Because the master is so moved by the servant's faithfulness. Instead of sitting down and having them wait on him, he invites them to sit down and he waits on them. I mean, you can imagine, here comes the master and the servants are so excited to see him and say, Master, welcome home. It's so good to see you, sir. We're so glad you're back. You must be exhausted. Here, sit down. Let us wash your feet. Let us get you something to eat. And he says, no. Why don't you sit down and let me wash your feet and let me serve you food? Well, that's exactly what Jesus did several months later in the upper room when they had come together to celebrate the Passover, which we know today as the Lord's Supper. They had made all the preparations except for one very important detail they left overlooked, and that was a servant, a slave, to wash the feet. They had the, they had the towel, they had the bowl of water, but they had no servant, and none of the disciples were about to lower themselves and start washing everyone's feet, and so Jesus got up and wrapped the towel around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet which I think is prophetic of the wedding supper of the Lamb. While we don't have specifics about what will happen, uh, it will be an opportunity for Christ, our bridegroom, to serve us as his bride. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the linen, fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
And he said to them, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, God is preparing Christ, our bridegroom, our husband, if you will, is preparing this uh, lavish feast for us, his bride. And he's looking forward to serving us in heaven someday. Notice it says, whether he comes, verse 38, in the second watch, which was 9 p.m. to midnight, or the third watch, which was midnight to 3 a.m., it didn't matter when, you had to be ready. Blessed are those slaves who are prepared. And so this first analogy, again, is... uh, the master returning from a wedding. It's all about being prepared, being ready for his return. But there's also a second um, analogy that Jesus uses, and that is a robber burglarizing a home. A robber burglarizing a home. Look at verse 39. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Newsflash, thieves don't set up, set up an appointment to rob your house. Like, they call you up, hey, I'm just wondering, uh, when would be a good day for me to come over and steal your stuff? Just, just let me know, I'll set it up. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. And this is a, a, an analogy that is used not just by Christ, but by Paul and Peter and John, the other apostles, uses the same analogy uh, of, of a thief breaking into a house at night to describe the, the second coming of Christ. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is what, how Paul used this same analogy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord, obviously, is a reference to the second coming of Christ. It'll come like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Listen to Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, he uses the same analogy. Again, they heard Jesus say it, um, and so they used it in their writings. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. And by the way, let me just read the verses leading up to this. Do not let this, this is a 2 Peter 3, 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And this is always the issue when, I, when, when, when the question is asked, hey, do you think Jesus is coming back? Yeah, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. Well, do you think he's coming back today? Well, I don't know, probably not. It's been 2,000 years. 
unbelievers are like, well, see, it's been 2,000 years. Really? You guys are still holding out on the fact that Jesus is coming back? It's been 2,000 years. Come on. Well, Peter said 1,000 years to God is like what? A day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The reason why he hasn't come back yet is because he's giving us more time to repent, giving more people more time to get right with him. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come. Even though it may seem like a long time, we've been waiting a long time, it will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. John, in the book of Revelation, records Jesus' words to uh, the church in Sardis. This is Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. So remember that you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will know at what hour, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And then again in Revelation 16, verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. So what is Jesus getting at? What's his point? Back in Luke chapter 12, Notice he says, you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Nobody expects the thief to show up. He just shows up and catches everybody off guard. So you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Listen, there are over 300 references in the New Testament regarding the return of Christ. There's no question in any of our minds that Christ is going to return. The only question is when? And no one knows the answer to that question, and that's why we always have to be ready. So, what does it look like to be ready? What does it look like to be a a watchful steward who lives in light of the imminent return of Christ. And I think as we examine the the New Testament and all the references about the return of Christ, there are some very practical implications for us as believers. Things that we can apply to our lives, principles that we can apply that will make us ready or make sure that we're ready for Christ's return. And so I've listed eight implications. These aren't all the implications, but this is the list I came up with that I thought might be helpful. They were helpful to me. Hopefully they'll be helpful for you. So what are the practical implications? What are the the things that we can do to make sure that we are ready for Christ's return? Well, number one, make sure you're truly committed to Christ. In other words, make sure you're truly saved. You can just go back and look a few chapters to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And this is the gospel according to Jesus. You ready? 
If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And notice verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What is that talking about? What does it mean to be ashamed when Christ returns? Well, Matthew chapter 7, I think, gives us some insight into that. Matthew chapter 7, on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking about how you can know if a person's truly saved or not. You'll know them by their what? By the fruit in their life, right? And then he says this. This is Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everyone who calls themselves a Christian or says, yeah, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. In other words, not everybody who calls themselves a Christian or thinks that they're a Christian is going to go to heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, what day? When, well, when the Lord returns, when they're standing face to face with the Lord. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's an embarrassing moment. That you show up, as it were, to the gates of heaven, thinking you're a shoe in and Jesus is like, who are you? I don't know you. Oh, yeah, but I, I went to church every Sunday, and I did this, and I did this. And he's like, yeah, but we never had a personal relationship. It was all maybe just up in your head. It was never truly in your heart. He goes on to tell the, the story of the two foundations. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. This is talking about eternity here. Heaven or hell, who goes to heaven, who goes to hell? And he's saying, hey, listen, it's all about those who actually do what I say. Not that you get to heaven by doing good works. That's not the point. It's that if you say you believe in Jesus, right, you're going to obey Jesus. You're going to follow Jesus. You're going to put into practice the things he says. One other passage we could look at under this point of making sure you're truly committed to Christ is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, talking about the return of Christ when Christ will be revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In other words, God will punish those who Reject the gospel. Reject Jesus as our Lord and Savior. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. 
and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So the question is, do you believe in Jesus? He who has the Son, or he who believes in the Son will have life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So number one, you want to be ready, you want to live in light of Christ's imminent return is make sure you're truly saved. Make sure you're truly committed to Christ. And, and we're not about to show you some scary movie to, you know, to kind of manipulate you into that decision. We trust the Spirit of God can do that through his word. So make sure you're truly committed to Christ. Secondly, stay connected to fellow believers. Stay connected to fellow believers. We're all familiar with Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25, but in light of our conversation this morning about the return of Christ, listen to this maybe with fresh ears. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see what? The day drawing near. In light of the imminent return of Christ, he says, don't forsake assembling together. Why? Because we all need to be encouraged by one another. And we need to come to church considering, giving some forethought. How can I stimulate other people to love Jesus more and, and, and to, to do good works, to, to live a, a holy and pure life? If you remember when Paul was teaching the Thessalonians about the rapture. He said, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord together. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we're having an example, an illustration of the encouragement that, that happens when we gather together, even this morning, right? We're being encouraged to, be, to remember that Christ could come back at any moment. And hopefully this is having a stimulating effect on all of our lives, helping us to love him more and want to serve him more faithfully. And so stay connected to fellow believers. Get involved in a local church. Plug in. Get to know people, develop relationships, and, and seek to sharpen one another and stimulate one another in our walk with Christ and our relationship with Christ. Number three, live a holy and godly life. You want to live in light of the imminent return of Christ? This is probably the first thing that comes to our mind when we think about, well, if Jesus could come back at any moment, how should that affect my life practically? Well, I should be living a holy, godly life. And there's... It's probably the, the, the one emphasis, one, the one thing that's emphasized more than anything else in, in the context of passages that talk about the return of Christ is, is how it is, should affect specifically our holiness and our godliness. For example, Romans 13. We just looked at this a few months back. Romans 13, verse 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And again, I think that salvation is talking about the return of Christ. 
The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. How about Titus chapter 2? Love this passage. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And then notice it goes on. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You're probably familiar with 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds or gird up your, the loins of your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, as you consider Christ's return, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then 2 Peter, again, we were already there once, but let's go back there. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, after talking about how Christ will come like a thief, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, talking about the destruction that will come, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so if that's where we're going to be living, right, in a place where righteousness dwells, we should be striving to be righteous now. Doing the right thing. And then, of course, 1 John chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? Purifies himself, even just as he is pure. So, living in light of Christ's imminent return requires that we live a holy, godly life. Number four, It also means that we work hard for the Lord. We work hard for the Lord. Back in Luke, in that same context, Luke chapter 12, he goes on to tell another parable about a faithful steward. He he talks about a watchful steward in 35 to 40, and in 41 through 48, he talks about a faithful steward. Verse 43, blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing when he comes. This is that old expression, if you have the King James or are familiar with the King James, occupy until he comes. In other words, don't just sit around in your pajamas on your rooftop waiting for Jesus to come back. Get after it. Serve the Lord. There's lots of work to be done. Luke 19, 13 And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minds and said to them, do business with this until I come back. 
in John 4, excuse me, John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus talked about the urgency with which we're to live and serve uh, him. John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. First Corinthians 15 is, is a great um, passage about the rapture. Paul's uh, explaining the, the rapture, the timing of the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15. And he, he concludes all of this talk about the mystery of Christ's return and the resurrection of our bodies. In verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of the fact that Christ is going to return and, and, and we're going to be snatched away and we're going to be made like him. He says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And then 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, there apparently were because... Paul had spent a lot of time teaching them about the return of Christ because they had lost some loved ones to death and they weren't sure what had happened to them. They thought, oh, they missed the return of Christ. Now what? They're lost forever. They were grieving. So Paul gave them lots of instruction about the return of Christ. Well, apparently some of them took it too far and decided to put on their sleep pants and get on the roof and wait for Jesus to come back. And they were just being lazy, busybodies, and so this is what he said to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And so work hard for the Lord. Number five, focus your energy and invest your resources in eternal things. Focus your energy and invest your resources in eternal things. Again, back to the context, Luke chapter 12. You remember verse 33. Well, he says, seek first his kingdom, right, and his righteousness, Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So we understand this whole concept about laying treasure up in heaven. You can't take it with you, but you can set it on ahead. Philippians chapter three, verse 18 Many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. But notice, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we need to keep our Mind set on things above, right? Colossians chapter three, verse two, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Again, the revelation of Christ is a reference to his second coming. So we need to focus our energy and invest our resources in eternal things, not earthly things. Number six, 
We need to also help others be ready for Christ's return. We need to help others be ready for Christ's return. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, familiar passage about being ambassadors for Christ, but consider the context. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. In other words, we get it. We know that Jesus is coming back and we're all gonna stand before him and give an account of our lives because we get that. We're out to persuade men. Well, what does that mean to persuade men? Well, verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we're out there every day saying, hey, listen, we know Jesus is coming back. And that dude that's sitting in the cubicle next to us or sitting in the desk next to us or, you know, doing the wall balls next to you at the gym, whatever, they don't know that Jesus is coming back. If that was you, wouldn't you want somebody to tell you? Hey, newsflash, pal, Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? (laughs) Do you know him? I can help you. So we should have a burden to help others get ready for Christ's return. This was Paul's passion. He would share Christ with others and then he would commend them when they would in turn share Christ with others. They'd come to Christ, they would share Christ with others. The Thessalonians were a good example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 Paul was commending the church in Thessalonica. He says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Paul's out there trying to share the gospel, wanting to share. He said, I don't even have to tell people because you've already been there. Your testimony, your, your, your example, your gospel witness is going around the world. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and I love this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So here we are this morning, sitting here waiting, right, for God's son from heaven. What are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? Well, the word of the Lord should be sounding forth from our church to this community and around the world. And then maybe one last reference here under this subject of helping others be ready for Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, set Christ apart in your heart always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asked you to give an account of the gospel. Is that what it says? No, it says asked to give you an account for the what? Hope. The hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. In other words, we need to always be ready 
to let people know why do we have such hope in, in the midst of the, the, all the depression and all the discouragement that we see around us. What, what is that hope? What is the source of that hope? Well, it's Christ, that he came, he died, he rose again, and guess what? He's coming back. That's the hope, the gospel. So help others be ready for Christ's return. Uh, number seven, if you want to live in light of Christ's imminent return, well, then pray for Christ's return. Make that a regular part of your prayers. I mean, that should be a, a, something we pray about daily. I confess to you, I don't pray that, that the Lord would come. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And of course, Revelation 22, verse 20 Christ testifies, yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen, come Lord Jesus. That was a prayer. John was praying, Lord, come. I I want you to come. And so I think we need to get in the habit of, of, of asking the Lord to come quickly. Pray that every day. That'll put it on the forefront of your mind, right? That, hey, I just prayed that Jesus would come back. I don't want to be a hypocrite and not believe it could, that he's going to answer my prayer. He could, he could answer that prayer today. And then lastly, number eight, remain patient and steadfast until the end. Remain patient and steadfast until the end. James chapter five, verse seven. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. In other words, hang in there. Don't give up. Persevere. Don't complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings and the Lord, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. In other words, hang in there. Persevere until the end. Don't quit. Even it seems like the Lord's return is long in coming. Don't ever give up hope. So again, I ask you, how many of you believe that Jesus is coming back? How many of you believe that he could come back in your lifetime? I mean, you really believe that. That's a good start. That's a good start. Can you imagine how our lives would be impacted if we live like Christ will come in 2021? Can you imagine the kind of year we could have as a church? The kind of year you could have as a Christian? If you lived with this mentality, this mindset that Christ is going to come in 2021? I'm not promising he will. Because anybody who says he knows when Jesus is coming back is, is, is a heretic. Because the Bible says we can't know the exact time. But 
The principle is he could come back. And if we lived like it, I think it has, could have a radical effect on each of our lives and on the life of our church. One of the reasons why we take communion is to anticipate the return of Christ. Towards the end of Luke, Luke 22, verse 14, in the upper room, Jesus introduced the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, verse 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, here it is, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is waiting to take communion, if you will, to celebrate with us at his return. But in the meantime, we get to take communion. And every time we take communion, it's not just to remember his death on the cross for us. It's also to remember his return. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think we need to think more about the coming of Christ when we take communion um, and not just keep it focused on the death of Christ. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we end our time together, this watch night service, remembering the death of Christ, but focusing also on the return of Christ. Because we just celebrated his first coming. And guess what? That was Christmas, right? His first coming. His second coming is just as sure as his first coming. 